Father, we come before you, very weak vessels and uh, in need of you. I know some of us are in desperate situations. Some of us are in situations, I, I don't know every situation here. Obviously, there are some people that are probably in situations that only you know are true in their lives. And I pray that you would speak to those hearts that need to be comforted as the God of comfort. Will you comfort us with all of your comfort? And I pray for those who need conviction because of sin. I pray you convict sin. I pray that you would work and, and do a, a transforming work in our lives. As we open up the scriptures today, we wouldn't just have church again, but that you would change us. Those who love you a bunch, that they would love you even more. And those who don't know you at all will come into relationship with you. That you do a, a work right now that we would encounter you and that we'd be forever changed as a result of what you speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, today we're talking about suffering. I don't think that's something that takes a long time to illustrate. I'm pretty confident that everyone here either has, is, or will be suffering at some point. And if you look around at the news, you see all the stuff that's going on in our world. There's suffering all over the place. I saw one guy uh, tweeted this week. He's the vice president of Lifeway and Research. His name's Ed Stetzer. And he was making a commentary on us as a society, but he, he quoted some statistics that just show the suffering in our world. He said seven, in five days this past week, in a five-day time period, 700 refugees drowned off of Greece. 9,000 babies were murdered here in the U.S. In five days, 9,000 babies. 68 people were shot in Chicago, and then his commentary was, and the news is dominated by a gorilla. We have lost our minds. And what we think is important, and what we talk about, but you cannot deny that there is suffering in this world. Jesus promises it in John chapter 16 and verse 33. In this world you will have trouble. Now there's a lot of reasons. A lot of people want to ask the question, why? Why is there suffering? Well, sometimes there's suffering because you're a believer and you're disobeying God's plan for your life and he's disciplining you. He disciplines those he loves. Sometimes it's because of your sin that you're suffering. Sometimes it's because of somebody else's sin and it's the ripple effect. Someone that's close to you sin and it caused problems in your life and you suffer because of that. Sometimes it's not because of your sin or anybody that you know sin. It's just because this world is broken by sin and because we're not in the place where there is no crying and there is no pain. And that's, that's going to be one day in heaven for those who know Jesus. Not for everybody, for those who know Jesus. But while we're here in this place, there is suffering. And Jesus promises there's going to be suffering. He was killed. And so to think that by following him there would be no suffering is not, it's nonsensical. There is suffering. And I can quote stats to you about the suffering that's here. I could tell you that in 2015 there were 600,000 miscarriages. That's not quite the same as when you experience your own miscarriage. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you have grown children and they've miscarried babies. And some of you have friends and loved ones and they painted the room and they had a name and then that baby's not here. That's different than hearing a statistic and the statistics are terrible. I can share statistics about world hunger. They're awful. How many people don't eat? People die of starvation. That's not the same as when you lose your job and you don't actually know where your next meal's coming from. Something different about actually experiencing suffering. We talked to you about divorce. Divorce statistics are terrible. But it's different when you sit in your living room and you look around and the person you were planning on sharing your life with isn't there. And it's quiet now. And you tried and they wouldn't listen. Or maybe you didn't try and now you look back and think, I wish I would have fought. And it's not the same as when you know somebody that you love so much and they die sooner than you expected or somebody dies painfully and slowly. There's a lot of suffering. And we talk about as a church, all the victories all the time. We talk about how many people trust Christ as their savior. We talk about people with uh, freedom over addictions and marriages that get reconciled and diseases that get healed, and we should, and we should celebrate that stuff. But at the same time, realize there's also marriages that aren't being reconciled. 
and there's diseases that aren't being healed. And there's people that are trapped in bondage of sin, and there's people that are choosing sin over Jesus continually, all the time. There's suffering. I, heard, I saw one, uh, there's a podcast that I, I'll check out every once in a while, that there's people that write into this pastor, John Piper is the pastor, and I'll ask him questions. And they'll ask different questions about struggles and theological issues, and this one guy wrote in and said, my brother just found out as a 20-year-old that he's, he's going to be blind, and he feels like his life's been taken from him. What do I say to him? And uh, Pastor Piper goes through and shares some different theological things. But then he shares a quote that I wanted to share with you today. It's from Joni Erickson Tata. And maybe you know who she is. She's a well-known author, uh, Christian speaker. And she talks a lot about suffering. When she was 17 years old, she says as a teenager, she loved horseback riding and playing tennis and swimming and all the stuff that lots of teenagers like, real active. And one day she dove off of a, a dock into some water that was shallower than she thought it was, and she broke her back and uh, was paralyzed as a quadriplegic for, it's been almost 50 years now. And uh, she was one time doing an interview, and she said, I hope I can take my wheelchair to heaven with me. She says, I know that's not biblically correct, but if it were, I'd have my wheelchair up there in heaven right next to me when God gives me my brand new glorified body. And I would then turn to Jesus and say, Lord, do you see this wheelchair right here? Well, you were right when you said that in the world we would have trouble because that wheelchair has been a lot of trouble. But Jesus, the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you, and the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. And today I want to share with you that Jesus is stronger than your suffering. He's stronger than your suffering. And that doesn't mean every time that you're going to be healed, but it does mean that every time that he's got, he's got a plan. The enemy, he's so strong that Satan can't even attack your life without asking him permission. He's got all the authority. Nothing happens in your life that doesn't pass through his hands. He is so powerful over that suffering that he can stop it at any moment but he can also use it in your life for a greater good than just the physical trials and the difficulties that we go through. And so today we're going to talk about how Jesus is stronger than suffering from Mark chapter 5, if you have a Bible, and verse 21 is where we're going to start reading. I'm going to read verses 21 through 29 right now. Eventually, Lord willing, we're going to get through verse 34 today, and we're going to see that Jesus is stronger than suffering. We've already seen, remember, how popular he was. He was in that house in Mark chapter 3, and it was so packed he couldn't even eat. So think about how packed that is. Like he can't get food, he can't even do basic stuff. He was so popular because everybody wants their needs met. And then he left and he gets in this boat and there's a storm and he calms the storm, shows he's stronger than the storm. He goes over to the other side for one guy. He crosses the lake and he goes to the other side and he heals this demon-possessed guy and the other people there, they're, they're so scared of his power. They say, we'd rather have our issues than you here, so please leave. And Jesus says, okay, I'll leave. And he goes back over to the other side and they didn't have like cruise itineraries back then. I don't know if you knew that or not. But there's a huge crowd just waiting and hoping that Jesus shows up. Who do you think's in that crowd? It's a bunch of people like us. We got our own pain. We got our own issues. We're hoping Jesus will help us out. And so this huge crowd's there waiting for him. Look at it, verse 21. And we're going to focus in. We're going to see two people that are suffering greatly today, but we're going to focus in on one, an unnamed woman. Look what the passage says. When Jesus had again crossed over, so he, goes, he was on one, he crossed to one side, there's a storm, comes back over, he's back to Capernaum. Where was that before? Where that house was packed. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus, perhaps the synagogue ruler that was in Mark chapter 1, when Jesus did one of his first miracles in this book and he cast out a demon with just the word of his mouth, maybe Jairus was there and he was the synagogue ruler there and he's thinking to himself, if Jesus can do that, maybe he can help me. Maybe he can help my daughter. Look at what happens. One of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet, and he pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter, 
is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. Those hands that have healed so many others. Put, if I can just get them on my daughter. And so Jesus went with them. And they're on their way, and look what happens. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, verse 25. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Verse 29. Immediately, you can underline that word, immediately her bleeding stopped. And she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. So we'll just stop right there for right now. We'll go a little bit further today, but let's stop right there. Think about this woman's issues. I don't know if you're on Facebook or not, but if you've seen, sometimes people will put under their relationship status, it's complicated. <laughs> That's what this woman's life is like. She has no relationship status. She can't have relationships. She's a total outcast. She's considered unclean. You go to verses 25 and 26. She's got a bleeding issue she's had for 12 years. Not 12 months, 12 years. That's probably that her menstrual cycle never stops. And so she's unclean. She can't touch. She's got no family. She's distanced from everyone. She's not able to be married, which is a social curse. She's not able to have children, which is considered a social curse. It says here that she spent all of her money on doctors. She's got financial issues. She's got physical issues. She's got emotional issues. She's got spiritual issues. She's got relationship issues. It's complicated. And that's how most of our lives are. Like we think that we come like, oh, if I could just deal with my anger, my jealousy, if I wasn't so lustful, if I wasn't so covetous. If I wasn't, if we think it's like this one thing. And that's, God's so gracious that he lets us think it like that. Because we let us see all of our, it's so complicated. And there's so much suffering. But I want to share with you today this, that God uses that suffering. He doesn't waste any of that suffering. We waste a lot of stuff as Americans. God doesn't waste anything. So whatever your suffering is, you haven't cried a tear that he's unaware of. He uses all of our suffering. And here for this woman, he uses this very suffering and all the things that are happening in her life ultimately to drive her to Jesus. If this is the kind of woman that wants to live in the shadows. This is the shy personality. This is, she would like to sneak up and anonymously just touch Jesus and then be gone and just have her physical stuff taken care of. But God's using it ultimately to grow her faith. And God uses your suffering too. Now, I don't know all the things that are going on. And the lives of what you think about how many people are here today, people are in the video, people that watch online. I don't know all those issues. I know some of your issues. I know some of you have marriages that are falling apart. I know some of you have diseases that you wish would be healed. I know some of you have lost people, and it's really hard to deal with. Some of you have lost children. Some of you have miscarried babies. Some of you have been through the, the very things that are some of the greatest pains in our world. And sometimes it seems like there's no solution. And sometimes it seems like you're praying and, and no one's listening. This woman was like this for 12 years. What do you think her prayers were like around year six and seven? And some of you, you feel like almost like the things could be so bad that happened and they seem to come out of nowhere that it's like, were you surprised by this God? Let me tell you something. God is aware of all of it. He's surprised by none of it. And he uses all of it for your good. He's aware of all of it. He's surprised by none of it. And he uses all of it for your good and ultimately for his glory. There's a verse of scripture that oftentimes Christians will quote. And I'll tell you, if I'm suffering and I'm missing something, somebody comes up and quotes this verse, it seems so trite. I want to punch him in the face if I'm just being candid. It's Romans 8, 28. God works all things together for good. Those who love Jesus, called according to his purposes. Uh, that's true, but I don't want you to tell me that right now. Unless I know that you've suffered greatly, then it's different. 
if someone shares that news and you know that they've suffered greatly, it just it comes across different. There's a, there's a scholar, his name's B.B. Warfield. He's real famous among scholarship. Uh, was a, a professor at Princeton University for 34 years. He's, he's well known for a book that he wrote when people were debating back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, whether the Bible was actually the Word of God or whether it was just a really good piece of literature. And it's called The Inspiration and Authority of the Bible. And a lot of people know that, know how influential he was. He's got a lot of great stuff to say about the Bible. What a lot of people don't know is that when he was 25 years old, he married his sweetheart, Annie. They went on honeymoon to Germany, and while they were there, she was struck by lightning. She was paralyzed. He would care for her for the next 39 years of their lives together. Rarely did he even leave his house for more than two hours at a time. And you can just, can you imagine the needs that she would have, being paralyzed, struck by lightning, and all of that would do to your body? And he was her caregiver. And he says about Romans 8, 28, it's really about two things. It's about God's government, that he's in control of all of it, that nothing comes into our lives that's outside of his control. And it's also about his favor, his blessing. See, rarely as people who live in America, especially during this time, do we ever talk about suffering as a blessing. We're blessed because we got a free lunch, right? Like we're blessed because, I mean, just check social media and see what people say is blessed. It's not because of difficult stuff usually. But he says it's his favor because nothing befalls us, nothing comes into our lives that isn't for, his, for our good and his glory. That he's got the government, the control of all of it, and he's got the blessing of all of it, that he can take the worst stuff that happens and ultimately use it for our good. That's how powerful, how strong, and how sovereign he is. And so that's why you see in the Bible, do you ever read the Bible and you think, man, that's confusing stuff. You see all these places where suffering is talked about as a blessing. Jesus calls suffering a blessing. Read Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are those who mourn. Where does mourning come from? You don't just wake up and decide to cry one day. Depressed people mourn. People who have their spouse die mourn. People whose kids are miscarried, they mourn. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's not thinking you've got anything you bring to the table. That's a humility. And where does that come from? From brokenness. Blessed are the persecuted. So Jesus is saying that that is a blessing. Why? Because he uses it ultimately to grow our faith. What does James say? James chapter 1, rejoice in your trials. Why will we rejoice in our trials? Because God uses it to grow us in perseverance and sharpen our faith and refine our faith. In Acts chapter 5, the apostles get beaten and it seems so weird to us. Acts chapter 5 verse 41, and they say at the end of being flogged, we praise your name because we were worthy to suffer for the name. The apostle Paul, he's a guy who knew a lot of suffering. Read 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We won't end this message, but you should. He says this in Acts chapter 14. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. He's also the guy who wrote Romans 8, 28. Peter, who we know is impulsive. We know the young Peter in the Gospels. Later, Pastor Peter, writing one of his epistles in 1 Peter to a bunch of people that are being persecuted, says this, in this you greatly rejoice. That's weird. That's not normal. That's not natural. That's supernatural. That's otherworldly. That's people who realize their citizenship isn't in this broken, fallen place, but it's somewhere else. This is in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have made, you've had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that, oh, for the purpose of your faith, your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So your suffering is ultimately used for your good, your faith, and his glory. The praise, honor, and glory of Jesus when he's revealed. And that's what we see in our passage. 
and go back and try to imagine being in our passage. Try to imagine you were there. Imagine you were one of the people in the crowd that day. You were there because of your issues. We see different issues throughout the Gospels. There's blind people. There's hungry people. There's people that can't walk. There's people that, hey, can you settle the dispute between me and my brother, an inheritance issue? There's marriage issues. And so you've got your issue, and you're there in the crowd, and you're pressing up, and Jesus is getting out of the boat with his disciples. He's on the shore still. And up walks Jairus. And everybody knows you're going to pay attention to Jairus. He's the guy with the reputation. He's the guy who's respected. He's called in our passage. You go back and look, verses 21, 22. He's the ruler of the synagogue. That means he's respected. He's religious. We find out later in the passage he's probably very wealthy. He's coming. He's got the clothes, the religious clothes on. He looks sharp. He might have an entourage with him. And if you've seen any of these encounters that Jesus had with people like this up to this point, you know there's probably going to be a theological debate. And you're probably thinking to yourself, I don't care about that. I just want my issue fixed. But then you see what happens is that Jairus comes walking up. And you've got to keep in mind here that Jairus is the leader in this passage, not Jesus. At this point, people don't know what we know when we read the Gospels. They don't know that he dies on the cross to pay for our sins, for our iniquities, for the things that we've done wrong. As, a, as an innocent, righteous man, he goes to the cross as fully God and fully human. He dies and then raises again. They don't know this. He's just a miracle worker to them. Jarius is the leader. Jarius has the reputation. Jarius comes walking up, and they expect a theological confrontation, but look what Jarius does. He falls on his knees. Because he's not coming as a religious leader. He's not coming with pomp and circumstance. He's not coming because of his reputation. He's coming as a father who's desperate because his little daughter is dying. And look at verse 23, what Mark says happens. He doesn't just make a request of Jesus. Notice this. One of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him. Now, we find out later in the passage that his daughter's 12 years old. Now, 12 years old then was your entering womanhood. Your menstrual cycle had started, you're in puberty, you're eligible for marriage. But to a dad, you're always his little girl. He says, my little daughter is dying. I remember he's pleading, so this is probably not one request. Please, please, please come put your... Put your hands, your hands have healed so many. Put your hands on her. You just come. Now think about what this means for Jairus. He's not like Nicodemus where he sneaks in at night. This is the middle of the day in front of a huge crowd. His friends are the ones that are going to want to kill Jesus. This is career suicide for Jairus. His closest friends, those relationships are over. He doesn't care. Because suffering has a way of grounding us, doesn't it? And what really matters, and what ultimately happens is it drives them to Jesus. Maybe, I saw what you did with that demon possessed guy, maybe you can help me. And I don't care what anyone else thinks. And then Jesus is so gracious. You see the way that he interacts sometimes with religious people. He's so abrupt and he's so harsh. And here's a guy, he's a religious leader, but he comes with humility and he comes in faith. And so Jesus isn't just for, and don't miss this, he's not just for the outcast. He's not just for the prostitute. He's not just for the, he's also for the social elite that are humble. And so Jesus goes with this guy. They leave. And then there's, but there's so many people. They're crowding in. They're pressing. There's like throngs of people coming around him. They're all touching him. And some people are probably reaching out like he's a rock star. They just want to touch him. Some people probably like the president. They want to shake his hand. And some people, they want their situation fixed. But Mark focuses in on this one woman, this anonymous woman. And she's got incredible pain. 
And we said it was complicated, but go back and look at verses 25 and 26. Verse 25, she's got this issue. She's having suffered this blood issue. There's participles that just keep piling up on each other. Mark's showing us for a reason. He wants us to feel the weight of all the issues that are happening here. Having suffered for 12 years, verse 25. Having spent all of her money on all the doctors. Having lost everything she has. She's tried all kinds of stuff. The Talmud, which is an old book that gives some information uh, around Bible time, tells us there were about 11 different cures for the disease here. And you see, if you're in the medical profession, uh, you might not like the way that Mark phrases this. Mark says that she suffered a great deal and her many doctors and spent all of her money and she didn't get any better and said she got worse. Luke, who is a doctor, writes this story. He says it in a different way. He says, no one could cure this. <laughs> Can you imagine trying some of the things that she tried? One of the things that I read this week, it got my mind wandering as I read some of the cures that people suggested. Uh, one of the things was to take ostrich egg ash, put it in a bag, and carry it around. That was supposed to cure an issue like she had, a menstrual issue, a vaginal bleeding issue. I have no idea how those would correlate together. It's pure superstition. But then I started to think to myself, so were ostrich eggs available pretty easily back then? How do you buy an ostrich egg? I wonder if it's like in New York City. So this is kind of how my mind works. You go to New York, do you know what New York's like? And you go, hey, I want to buy a knockoff bag or a fake Rolex. or Go down to Chinatown. You go to the special section of town. Is that what it was like? And then I just imagine some guy with a blanket, and he pulls out a bunch of eggs, and he says to the woman, hey, these are real genuine ostrich eggs. These aren't like the alpaca eggs, which I was told in the first service that alpacas don't lay eggs, but whatever. <laughs> That's how my mind went. I have some mammals and all that stuff, whatever. Who buys an ostrich egg? And how much did an ostrich egg cost? But she probably bought an ostrich egg. She spent all of her money trying these quacky things, and none of them worked. And all she wanted was to be healed. Another one of the things that you could do is you carry around a white piece of corn kernel that you had to get out of donkey dung. That was one of the cures suggested for this. Remember when they used to bleed people? Have you read about that? In, even in American history, and so we're only a couple hundred years old as a country. And you think about... They putting, you know, melt, you have a cough, and so they start burning your chest, so the, the pus is supposed to, no, that's because you just caused a wound. It's causing more harm than it's actually helping, but she's trying all of it. Why? Because of what she wants. What's really interesting is you get down to verse 34, which we'll get to in a little while, it says that she, when Jesus says that her faith has healed her, not her superstition, not her just touching his clothes, her faith has healed her, the word that's used there for healing is not the word that's usually used in the New Testament for physical healing. It's not the word that sometimes, there's one word where we get our word therapy, that's not what's used. There's another word that's used for physical healing. It doesn't use any of those. It uses a Greek word, sozo. I don't know if you've heard pastors use this or not. But it's the word for saved. Most of the time in the New Testament, it refers to spiritual salvation from our sins. But behind that word, it's interesting, Jesus didn't speak in Greek. He probably spoke in Hebrew or Aramaic. It's a Hebrew or Aramaic word, yasha which sounds a lot like, because it's got roots of, his name, Yeshua. Jesus saves. You see, this woman thought she wanted healing. She wanted one of these antidotes to cure her. She wanted, but underlying her wants, what she ultimately wanted was Yeshua, Jesus. Which makes me think of us. And, and we think we want, like if, we, if you just reconcile the marriage, then, then that'd be good. If you just heal the disease, and that, that's what I want. If you just give me this job, if you just give me this accomplishment, if I just get to this place, if I, and all these wants that we have. And oftentimes our suffering makes us think about, and I just want this, and I just want, and if you would, and, 
But ultimately, underlying all those wants is what we want is, and we don't even, this woman didn't even realize it. We want Jesus because he's the only one that can actually do it. See, that's the thing that's crazy about this passage is that no one could help this woman. So she tries all these cures. And you think about the suffering she's going through. You've got to remember, in 12 years, that's terrible for, that'd be terrible for any of us. But for them, the average life expectancy for a woman in this time was 40 years old. So you start your menstrual cycle when you're about 12. So for the majority, if not all of her adult life, she's been like this. If she was married, she is divorced. She can't have children. Two social curses on top of this. She's experiencing emotional loneliness. We saw that she's broke financially. The contrast between her and Jarius couldn't be more stark, by the way. Jarius is a man, she's a woman. Jarius is named, by the way. She isn't. Did you notice that? Jarius will find out his daughter, he's coming from a situation where the joy that he's experienced for the last 12 years is about to be gone. This woman has suffered for 12 years. Jesus will help both, though. They come to him in faith. So I don't know what your situation is. You come to him in faith. There might be some, no one has the answer. Jesus is stronger. And you look at, it says here, Luke, I love how Luke says it in, in Luke chapter 8 and verse 43 in the English ESV. He says that she could not be healed by anyone. Which makes me think a lot of Mark chapter 3 and verse 27. No one can bind the strong man. Which also makes me think of them being in the boat. When the professional fishermen can't do anything. These men of the sea can't do anything about this storm. So they look to Jesus who's a teacher. Say, don't you care? And with the word of his mouth, shh, wind. No one could calm the storm. And then they get to the other side. In Mark chapter 5, you're starting to see a theme here. Mark chapter 5, verse 6, they see this demon-possessed guy. In Mark chapter 5, verse 6, it says, no one was strong enough to subdue him. Jesus says, go into the pigs. Because Jesus is stronger than the storm. Jesus is stronger than your enemy. Jesus is stronger than your suffering. You know what you ultimately want is Jesus. Because he's the only one that can actually use your suffering for your good. His government, his favor in your life. So that when you're weak, you learn to lean on him. And the more you lean on him, the stronger you realize he is. But it's not just about you. He wants to grow your faith, but he uses it in the lives of others too. It's like I was reading or listening to this past week. I finished listening to the book of Genesis, uh, audible version, and one of the most compelling characters in the Bible maybe, but certainly in the book of Genesis, a guy named Joseph. Now, if, if it was just, he's really handsome, the Bible says. It says he's obviously really smart. He's a hero of the faith. If all those things were true, he wouldn't be compelling. Because people that are like that, that's like untouchable. Like they're not like real people. Like there's just, every once in a while you meet people and you're like, they just are amazing. But what makes him compelling is that he suffered so much. And so he's a little arrogant when he's young. His brothers don't like him because of it. They betray him. And isn't betrayal, betrayal, you expect people to betray you that you don't really know very well. At least I do. I just assume, you know, they're going to lie and they're going to cheat you and all that kind of stuff. But when people are close to you, there's a trust there, especially like family. He's betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, suffers all that comes with being a slave, then does what's right, tries to follow God. God's obviously humbled him at this point. He does what's right, and he gets falsely accused. Have you ever had somebody tell a lie about you, ruins your reputation, what other people think about you? He gets thrown in jail. He spends a, at least a couple years in jail. And imagine the loneliness of that, the darkness of that. And you think about the loneliness this woman has experienced. Then he gets out. God blesses him, gives him favor like we talk about. He becomes like the vice president in Egypt. 
There's a famine. His brothers come before him to get some food, and he recognizes them. And it doesn't say there that he forgives them. It doesn't say there that he's so gracious to them. It doesn't say he's so kind to them. He knows who they are. They don't realize who he is. He goes and he weeps. It's recorded in Scripture, his tears. God never misses one of your tears, by the way. And then, long story short, what ends up happening is he gets reconciled with his dad. He gets reconciled with his brothers. But then his dad dies. And when his dad dies, the brothers start thinking, well, dad was our, that was like our covering. That was our protection from Joseph's got all this power. He knows what we did to him. Now dad's not here, and they're afraid. And Joseph says, Am I, I'm not in the place of God. It's not for me to avenge. It's not for me to decide that bad stuff happens to you. But in one verse, Joseph tells us what God taught him through all of that. And this one verse shows that, that God is sovereign, that God is good, that he uses his forgiveness even in the lives of other people. How gracious he is. There's so much wrapped in this one verse. And it's not just a verse. It's easy just to read the verse and it's up on the screen. This is years of this man's life. And listen to what he says. You intended to harm me. He doesn't say it was okay. What they did was wrong. But it's not Joseph's decision to avenge it. That's the Lord's. You can deal with God. You intended to harm me. But God intended your worst crime, your greatest pain you brought into my life, he intended it for good to accomplish what's now being done. And he's impacting the lives of a bunch of other people. It's a saving of many lives. So God ultimately takes your wickedness and then uses it for somebody else's good, the good of many people. And you think about what happens here in this passage with this woman. How amazing that she's healed. No one can help this woman. In verse 29, immediately, she just touches Jesus. It was nothing for Jesus. He's stronger than her suffering. Immediately, it's healed. She knew she was better. But that wasn't just for that woman. Remember, he's walking through the crowd with Jairus. What do you think that did to Jairus' faith? When Jesus stops going through the crowd, Jairus has to be thinking to himself, hey, my daughter's dying. Like, There's a time crunch here. Let's go. What about all the other people and all their needs in the crowd? And the marital issues and the inheritance issues and the other people who had all kinds of diseases and blindness and hunger and poverty and all the stuff that was there. If Jesus can do that, maybe I should believe in him too. He's doing it for their faith. See, God does, he uses the suffering in our lives, not just in our lives, but in the lives of others. Paul in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says that God comforted us because he's the God of comfort, so that then you would experience the comfort that flows through us and, and from our pain that you would then be comforted. And he doesn't want them to be mistaken about how much pain there is because he's a guy who writes a bunch of the Bible, and so you might think to yourself, yeah, but it's easy for him because he's such a hero of the faith. And look at what he says. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure. Not, don't think to yourself this trite, stupid statement that's not true that people oftentimes say to Christians, God won't give you more than you can handle. Yes, he will. Paul says he did, far beyond our ability to endure. But why? So that we despaired even of life. We were ready to die. You ever been there? Just take me. Maybe you've had worse thoughts than that. What does he say? Indeed, our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, here's why, but on God, who is stronger, who raises the dead. What do you think this did for Jairus' faith here? But this woman, I had somebody tell me, and even in the hallway before the service started, this is this, that woman, this is my favorite passage of scripture. She's not even named. Think about how famous she is. How many lives she's impacted. But we don't even know her name. 
If she was just a normal woman who lived in, the, in this time period when Jesus was walking the earth and doing these things and she had, you know, two and a half kids and a dog or whatever they had for pets back, alpacas, whatever they had for pets, fence. Like, no one would know who she is. She'd have no impact in our lives today. But because of her suffering, she's known as the woman with the blood issue. She's known because of her loneliness. She's known because of her isolation. She's known because of her poverty. She's known because she was outcast. She's known because of what she suffered. And then because of her faith, which was a weak faith, a superstitious, inaccurate faith. But God used the, the smallest amount of faith. That's why to impact not just her life, Jerry's life, the crowd's life, your life. Job. We don't love Job because he's a great businessman. He was. Read Job 1. We don't love Job because he's a great family man, but he was. We're comforted by Job because Job was comforted by God, and he suffered greatly, maybe more than anyone ever, apart from Jesus. Which, what about Jesus? Think about Jesus' suffering. He didn't suffer for his own faith. He suffered for the benefit of others. He's the man of sorrows, by the way. Our Savior is a man of suffering. Read Isaiah 52 and 53. He is the suffering servant. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was crushed for our transgressions, for our sins. Our sin is not just that we made a mistake, that we messed up. It's when we decide to go our own way and we do, we think we can live life apart from God. We think we know what's best. That's sin. And he says to stop and turn from that. Turn to the one who was bruised for your iniquities, crushed for your sins. And think about what happened to Jesus. The betrayal, Judas, one of his closest friends, kisses him. He's betrayed with a kiss. Then he goes and they rip out his beard and they put a thorn crown on his head and they mock him. They strip him naked to humiliate him and they beat him and they flog him. They scourge him to the point that people, most people, many people would die. People were considered dead at his flogging. He knows suffering. And then they tell him to carry his cross and he can't. He has to have help because he's so physically exhausted. But when he gets to the place called the skull, Golgotha, they nail him to the cross, his hands, his feet. They put him up on the cross to die. And remember his buddy Peter? If everybody else leaves, I'll be there. Guess where Peter's at? He's gone. Peter's not there. Nobody's there. The worst part is not the physical stuff he went through. There's never been two closer than the Father and the Son. And he cries out to his Father. Why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You think you know loneliness? Think about the loneliness of the cross. He's taken upon the wrath of his father because he's becoming your sin and my sin. And you know what, God? You, any suffering that you experience is ultimately so you will know the one who suffered for you. And then strengthen the faith of others through the comfort that you receive in your suffering. I was reading a blog this week by a youth pastor whose daughter, who's six years old, has cancer. You heard Lacey's story and the battle that she had with cancer. Imagine a six-year-old. Six-year-old, her, her name is Jada, little girl. And this youth pastor was talking about putting his daughter to bed, tucking her in, and he asked her the question. They've been reading a book uh, by John Piper about Job. And Job, he had rewritten Job and just put some of his imagination to it and some different words, paraphrasing some verses. And he'd been talking to his little girl about it. He said, do you think there are other people that love the Lord and experience suffering? And she said, yeah, me and Jesus. And then she said, but Jesus' suffering was badder than mine because he suffered for my sins. 
only six. She gets, she knows. She knows the gospel. And then he was sharing from chapter one with her about how Job comes and he offers sacrifices for his ten kids. And then now Piper makes up a conversation between God and Job about those sacrifices that Job's putting a lamb on the altar. And God asked Job, would you put one of your children on the altar instead of the lamb? And, and Job responds like, a humble servant but an honest parent. He says, have mercy on my kids, but whatever you think is best. And then the little girl, she was smart enough to figure out what was going on. She said, so God was asking Job to lay his kids on the altar? And the dad said, simply, basically, yes. And the question becomes, why, why is it always the hardest stuff that, that God wants? And the dad said, it's like we can't get at God in our comfort. That we know him best when we need him the most. You see, God uses our suffering to draw us to him. This, this woman's tried everything. Every, none of the doctors cares. None of this stuff. Jesus is like a last. Here's this guy. And imagine what she's thinking as she sees Jesus going through the crowd with Jairus. She's probably thinking to herself, that's the kind of guy you should help. Jairus, he's a religious leader. Not someone like me. I'm a religious outcast. But she goes for it and she touches his clothes. And what we see is that not only does God use our suffering, but he also uses our physical suffering to lead us to spiritual healing. That he uses our physical suffering to lead us to spiritual healing. And in this passage, he does heal this woman. Joni Erickson Tata wasn't healed. God did an amazing work in her life. This woman is healed. It says in verse 29, immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. In verse 30, at once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. Oh, so Jesus isn't into anonymous healings. Here's this woman who probably doesn't know her place in this world, who's probably incredibly shy, who's an outcast, who's just made a whole bunch of other people unclean by working her way through the crowd. She touches Jesus and then Jesus stops. He turned around to the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? Who touched my clothes? There are hundreds of people coming around him. There are throngs of crowd around him, touching him, all kinds of, and he's, who touched my clothes? Is Jesus a neat freak? Is he like a GQ, like his robe's always perfectly pressed? Who's touching my clothes? Maybe he's a germaphobe who carries around a little bottle of alcohol, cleans his hands off every time he shakes somebody's hand. Feeling convicted? No, I'm just kidding. That's not, that's not why Jesus stopped here, okay? Don't just take that little blurb of this sermon, by the way. That's not how he did it. Jesus is very personal. That's why he stops. He asked, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. His disciples said to him, uh, verse 31, you see the people crying against you? His disciples answered, and yet you ask, who touched me? They're basically saying, that's an impossible question. No one can know the answer to that question, Jesus. Jesus does. He knows who. He's giving her an opportunity to respond. Verse 32, but Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. What do you think it felt like to be that woman in that moment? Don't forget her issue, vaginal bleeding. Who's asking the question? Jesus, a man, a holy man, standing there with Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, and 12 disciples. All of them were men, by the way. Not just in our culture would that be humiliating. Try and imagine theirs. If you're that woman, what are you feeling? It said in verse 29, immediately she felt, that's a word for she experienced, she knew that she had been healed. And so for about two or three seconds, she was probably overjoyed with the fact that she's, now it's finally worked, something actually worked. And then Jesus stops and says, who touched me? Here's a woman who wants to live in the shadows. 
She'd rather just anonymously touch his robe and then be gone and have her physical problem fixed. And now Jesus is asking this question, can you imagine the terror? The word that's used in verse 29 to describe her situation, her affliction, is the word for whipping or scourging. And so the idea is both physical pain and shame. So this woman has lived her life in shame. And now Jesus says, who did this? How do you feel if you're that woman? You ever been called on in a situation and you don't know the answer and somebody singles you out and it's like, all the blood just rushes to your face. It's just like overwhelming. Your chest gets tight. That's how she's feeling. Look what happens. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet. That seems to be a common response to Jesus. And trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. I love that description. You know what the whole truth means? That's not the cleaned up, Christianized version of a testimony. Have you heard those? People will tell, they'll tell some awful thing, but God was good the whole time. You weren't thinking that in that moment, I bet. This is the raw story. This is all the doctors that were stealing money from her, knowing they couldn't fix her situation, but they still took her money. He's telling, she's telling that story. This is, this is a woman before a whole bunch of men talking about the vaginal bleeding, talking about being unclean, talking about being rejected by family, talking about what it's like to live in isolation, talking about what it's like to be lonely, to have no money. That's the whole truth. Why is Jesus asking this question? Is it to humiliate her? It's not. It's so she can be fully known and realize she's fully loved. Remember that Jesus is here with Jairus, who's probably thinking, my daughter's dying. You need to come help my daughter. And look what Jesus says, verse 34. He said to her, first word, daughter. It's the only place in the New Testament where Jesus calls someone daughter. What Jesus is doing here is saying, this isn't about just a physical healing. I want a relationship with you. We're not just going to have this anonymous, I fix your problems and I pass you by and you remember that moment. I want this to grow you close to me. And, and Jerry, so I'm going to get to your daughter. This is my daughter. This woman who has no family, this woman who thinks she's all alone, this woman who thinks she's unclean, this woman who's an outcast, she's mine. Daughter, your faith, not your touch, not some superstitious thoughts, not some magic, your faith has healed you, sozo, saved you, not just physically, but spiritually, brought you into relationship with me. Now go in peace, shalom. Not the absence of conflict in your life, a wholeness in your life. And you think about this woman, and all the things that she could have said, all the excuses she could have had, all the reasons not to come to Jesus, and some of you have them, but she still came. What about you? I quoted a verse at the beginning. It was John 16, 33, but I only quoted half the verse. John 16, 33 says, In this world you will have trouble. But then it's Jesus speaking, and the next part says, Take heart, have courage. I've overcome the world. He's not just talking about all the blindness and all the suffering. This woman who he heals in this passage will get sick again. She will die. Her blood issues healed. She might get arthritis. She might break her back. She, all kinds of stuff could happen. She still lives in this place. What Jesus ultimately does here is he heals her spiritually. He brings it, my daughter, you're mine. And the more she trusts in him, the stronger she'll realize he is. Like Joni Erickson Tata said, the weaker I was in that wheelchair, the more I leaned into you, and the more I leaned into you, the stronger I realized you to be. What about you? And we all have junk. We all have suffering. We all have pain, all kinds of relationships. I realize what we're talking about is heavy stuff today, so I don't want to just stop this message. I want to give you an opportunity to let God to use 
the pain that you've experienced. Some of you, it's pain from your past that you haven't really processed. You just, we kind of tuck it and we live in such a comfortable society, we just forget it and move on, get to the next thing. And God wants to use that to draw you closer to him. So you need to process that. Some of you are in the midst of pain right now. How does God want to use that to draw you closer to him? Some of you cry out for healing. He's not obligated because you ask him, but James chapter four, verse two says, you don't have because you don't ask. So ask him to heal you. And so we're going to take some moments in prayer. Some of you, I want you to know this, the, the pain that you experience and the suffering you experience here on this earth, it's a preview of what hell's going to be like for you because you don't know Jesus. And I don't want to give you false comfort that once you leave this place, everything's going to be better. It's going to be worse for you. For those of you who know Jesus, the pain that you experience here is not worth comparing to the glory you're going to receive in heaven. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We experience light and momentary affliction in comparison to eternity. And there's going to be rewards for the suffering that we go through and the way it grows our faith and when we're faithful in those moments. The way you spend eternity, those of you who suffer much, is going to be different than those who don't suffer much. It's going to be amazing for everybody that knows Jesus Christ as their Savior. But it's not going to be the same. And you receive glory in heaven eternal riches for the suffering you go through. So this weight that you carry now, it'll be nothing. Those of you who don't know Jesus, it's just a prelude for what you're going to experience unless you, like this woman, come to Jesus. And reach out to him. Ask him to save you from your sins. Because that's ultimately what you need, is you need Jesus. You want Jesus. You just might not know it yet. So we're going to pray. Let's pray. Father, I come before you with my friends that are physically present in this room, that are watching online, that are in the video venue, and I pray that you would comfort their hearts, those that are suffering greatly, those who know you, comfort their hearts. Those who don't know you, don't comfort their hearts. Draw them to you so that they wouldn't get a false peace. Have them trust you as Savior. Those who are carrying heavy burdens, maybe things that no one else knows about, I pray today might be a day where they become more known, known by you, known by your people, that they would feel free to express what's going on in their lives and they would realize they're still fully loved.